Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hi, everybody. Hope you're all well. So this episode's going to be slightly different to normal. No guest today. I've been getting many messages and DMs asking me specific questions about wine. And I thought it would be quite good every maybe three episodes that I do a bit of a Q&A. So Lauren Austin, uh, this episode is for you. She asked me about wedding wines. What's good value wines? How do you please everybody? Those kind of decisions. So I will be talking about that later in the show. Now, the winery of the week, I have decided has to be dedicated to South Africa. If you've been listening to any of the wine news, you would know that the South African wine industry is in major crisis right now. At the beginning of COVID-19, the prime minister or president uh, decided that one, they could not export any wine. He just banned that completely. Uh, That lasted, I think, about five weeks. Then he also said that no local sales could happen. That lasted two months. Can you imagine living in South Africa and not being able to buy any wine? Obviously, even worse, the wineries were not able to sell it. They kind of went back to normal, uh, selling again. And he has now made another announcement that they cannot sell locally. Now, thankfully, they can still export. So it's our job. Anyone listening to this who's not in South Africa, (laughs) drink South African wine right now. Bye, bye, bye. help them because that industry more than anything anyone else has been really affected so my winery of the week is Rustenburg I adore these guys I used to sell a lot of their wines when I was a sommelier back in the past they're known as definitely having one of the most beautiful estates in the Cape you will find them in Simonsburg the region within Stellenbosch and Stellenbosch certainly if you want some of the best reds is a perfect area to go and check out So this winery is known kind of like a first growth, if you know what a first growth means in Bordeaux. So one of the best estates, certainly, in South Africa. They're a family-owned winery. It's the Barlow family that looks after this estate. They actually bought the property in 1941. But actually, the vines have been growing there since the late 1600s. So it's been quite a while, and it's a pretty established area. This place is so beautiful, as I mentioned. Often they're used for film sets. So you might, without even even realizing have seen this property it's about 880 hectares it's huge only 110 hectares are planted to vines but the rest is used for a herd of free-range cattle there's a historical farm conservation lands and in fact loads of fimbos this is a flora that is indigenous to the cape it's just filled with so much wildlife on their webcam they capture a cape leopard coming into the property through the vines which I think is brilliant at the moment you have Murray Barlow who's the cellar master he's been cellar master since 2011 and to give you an idea of his winemaking skills he's won young winemaker of the year by diners club twice now nobody in that specific competition has won twice so that's quite an achievement over their history they have always had great winemakers if you look out for Addy Badenhorst's wines he used to be a winemaker there for a I think maybe about 10 years then there's also Luke um I can never pronounce his last name I think it's Akunagun Akunagun <laughs> he's the winemaker for Glenelly they have 
always been making solid, solid wine. Now, if you're feeling fancy, you can look out for some of their their flagship wines. Their single vineyard, Peter Barlow Cabernet Sauvignon, is absolutely brilliant, as is the Five Soldiers Chardonnay. I am going to just do a little bit of a tasting of the standard Chardonnay 2019 because it is always fantastic year after year. And I really don't think you can go wrong. And at just under £15, this is really good value. You can get this from frontierfinewines.co.uk if you are in England. Okay, so get ready to taste with me, please. (laughs) Okay, what is so good about this wine? You can smell the oak straight away, but it's not super, super intense and it's not that buttery caramel over the top style. It's very much slightly nutty, a little bit creamy, but actually the fruit is the main event. It's um, it's kind of like it's mangoes and peaches and a little bit of tropical fruit. It's a lovely full body wine. But actually, there's a nice elegance, there's a bit of restraint, and it doesn't taste fake. What I what I have an issue with under fifteen pound Chardonnays is often it almost tastes like the oak essence. It doesn't taste like real oak. They do use real oak in this Chardonnay, um, and actually, it's more like actual vanilla pod or even like cashew nuts, real nut skins. It's absolutely beautiful. It's not super super crazy and and over the top complex, but there's this really lovely limey zested acidity, just keeping your palate super super refreshed. Lovely. Yum. Go buy South African wine. (laughs) So my question to you is, do you buy bottles of wine based on how heavy they are? Do you buy them based on the punt or maybe that dimple, however you want to call it? Does the bigger the punt and the bigger the bottle, the heavier the bottle mean it's a better bottle of wine? I will talk about that at the end of the podcast. What I will talk about now though is, does a more expensive bottle of wine mean it is better? And I think the sweet spot is actually really between 10 and 20 pounds. If you start going above £20, by the way, you are going to get a really fantastic bottle of wine. But at that point, you start paying for marketing, you might start paying for limited availability, etc, etc. So it really is about do you want to try the producer's wines? Under £10, you have to be a little bit more careful. I personally think you should be avoiding full stop wines under £7. Let's look at the breakdown of what is in your bottle of wine. A lot of people do not realize this. So just the most expensive cost totally is the duty that you need to pay on a bottle of wine. Now, I sadly, for my more international audience, I'm going to talk about English duty, but there will be similarities across the board. So in England, for a bottle of red or white wine, you need to pay £2.23 right now, as of 2020, the year 2020, uh, the year we shall all remember. It's £2.23 for a bottle of wine and it is £2.86 for a bottle of sparkling wine. Now, if you keep in mind that, you keep in mind we have 20% VAT to add on top of the duty. Let me just repeat that. We're paying VAT on VAT. (laughs) And then continuing all that VAT and duty, you're also paying for the packaging. You're also paying for the logistics of getting everything sent across from whichever country it came from. And right at the very, very beginning of the whole chain is the quality of the juice and the amount you actually pay for it. So very simply put, if you add all these things together on a £5 bottle of wine, and don't forget the retailer, the importer, the supermarket with all that, they're adding on anything between 20% to 40% markup so they can make their costs 
you are not even getting 50 pence worth of juice. But if you remember that the duty always stays the same, the packaging, the logistics costs are pretty much the same per bottle. If you start paying six pounds a bottle, you're getting almost one pound 50 in juice. And if you buy a seven pound bottle, you're getting two pound 50 in juice, etc, etc. So for every extra pound you spend, you are getting much better value. So do remember that. I also think it is very questionable how you can make wine at such a low price point and it still tastes like fruit. I hate to tell people this because it really then makes people feel a bit disgusted. But for many countries, they're allowed to have 70 plus additives effectively that are approved and can go into a wine. Now, when we talk about additives, there obviously is the yeast. There is the sulfur that we talk about, which is a preservative. But there are other things that are a little bit more disgusting questionable I don't know colorings uh, are one of the most questionable ones to make the wine look better of course sugars just very very simply the worse the wine is the more sugar they have to put in to make it taste good and disguise the flavor so it's not going to be as healthy for you they might want to make it seem fresher so they put tartaric acid there might be ascorbic acid in there I already touched on the chardonnays often or even again big heavy reds where they're using oak essence it's not real oak Um, they might use defoaming agents like silicon dioxide I when I read about silicon dioxide I don't even know what that is but I don't like the sound of it (laughs) so when the fruit is grown properly if it is grown with an organic style to it they're not going to be using chemicals so already that's better for you we talked about the differences of organics and biodynamics etc in the episode before so go and check that out if you haven't already listened to it and then if you're growing the fruit properly you're not going to have as much rot, you're not going to have as much disease. So the actual fruit that's picked is ripe, it's got plenty of sugar in, it doesn't need you to alter it. So it's always worth looking for a winery that is claiming to be minimal intervention. In general, if they're not having to do much to it, then obviously you're going to have much less additives and yucky stuff put in the bottle. So just keep that in mind. When you start going across the eight, nine, ten pound wines, such like that, you're getting much better quality. It's going to be healthier for you, less yucky stuff, and you actually get much better value. Now, obviously picking wedding wines, you try to get as much of a budget as possible. So let's talk now about where you can get delicious wines that taste like the top, top, top wines without having to remortgage your house. (laughs) Okay, so obviously you're going to need sparkling wine for your wedding. A bottle of wine serves six and you only need one glass for the toast. So just keep that in mind in terms of your quantities. Now on a basic budget, you can always go Prosecco. That's your more fun, fruity fizz, tends to be a little bit sweeter. If you want the driest version, look for Brut on the label. Now if you want to go more like champagne, but without paying the price, you're looking for a traditional method sparkling wine, Cremont is a very, very good place to look. Now, you've obviously got Carver in Spain. You can look all over the world, of course, but Cremont has eight different regions throughout France. They have to hand harvest the grapes. There's a maximum extraction of juice that they can squeeze out of the grapes to maintain the quality, and they must at least 
age the wine for nine months on the lees. So what that means is after that second fermentation that happens in bottle, this is what they do in champagne, that's the traditional method, they lie down the wine for nine months. Yeast is always falling off of the, the grapes and the juice. There's all That's a natural product and we call it the lees. And so the wine is in contact with the lees for nine months and it gives you those bready flavours. That's why champagne is different to Prosecco. So this Cremant is made in the same way. There are eight different regions where you can find Cremant. Now, just in case you're looking for spelling, it's spelled Cremant, as in C-R-E-M-A-N-T, but Cremant. Um, I hope you like my French accent there. I've been practicing very, very hard. Um, Basically, the major regions are um, Cremant d'Alsace. So Alsace is up in the north, but bordering Germany. It's actually the sunniest kind of place, other than if we talk about down in the south of France. So Cremant d'Alsace actually get richer styles. And keep in mind, when we talk about Cremant... Whatever grows in that region is the grapes that they grow. So in Alsace, Pinot Blanc, which does have some similarities to Chardonnay, is generally the base wine. And there's a little bit of Ossoa. <laughs> we talked about that in the Dutch episode. So if you want to learn about Ossoa, then go to that episode. And also Riesling. So you get richer styles because of that extra sunniness. And also the grapes are quite aromatic there with, if they're adding in the Riesling. If you want the closest thing to Champagne, look for Cremont de Bourgogne. So that's the Burgundy, which is nearest to Champagne. And of course, they generally use Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. You have the Loire Valley, which is still up north. So again, cooler, fresher. And they use Chenin Blanc as their main grape variety. And if we start going further down south, you've got Bordeaux, which is actually a really interesting one that often gets overshadowed because, of course, we're often talking about the red wines. You can go down south to the Languedoc-Roussillon region and you can get Cremont de Lemoux. Now, Cremont de Lemoux actually claims to be the first place that traditional sparkling wine was ever made. So before Champagne. If you want a little bit of history, you need to go down to the Languedoc. That is where you're going to get the sunniest in comparison with Alsace region down in the lovely Mediterranean. So you're going to have bigger, richer styles. And they're using Chardonnay and Chenin with actually a little bit of Morsac, which is uh, native to the region. And if you want to explore Morsac as a great variety, they make Blanquette de Lemoux uh, or even Blanquette Method Ancestral. So again, if you want to know about the Method Ancestral, God, I'm referring back to all my old episodes, literally the one before when we talked about biodynamics and organics, I talk about that method. So you can go and check that out there. The other regions that you can get Cremont from are Cremont de Jura and Cremont de Savoie. But oh, we're talking great varieties of Trousseau, Chasselas, Savignin. I I need another episode on that one. <laughs> and there's also the last one is Cremont Didi in the Rhone Valley. So the most popular ones, Alsace, Bourgogne, Loire, and down in the south, Limoux, probably. I should also point out there is one country other than France that can use the term Cremont and follow those rules. And that is in Luxembourg. So if you're looking for a Cremont out of France, that's where you need to go. I also recognise you can get amazing and great value wines with Carver, which is the Spanish traditionally made sparkling wine, which typically comes from Catalonia in the northeast of Spain. But we're talking different grape varieties here. You do get different flavours. So that I think warrants its own podcast another time. Now, If all this talk about budget sparkling is not suiting you and you're wanting to really blow things up, one wine, if you're celebrating, I don't know, maybe your anniversary, is a very special 
special champagne that is aged underneath the sea. This is a champagne producer called Leclerc Briant, and it's their Cuvée Absis. It's a completely brute zero, so there's no sugar in it at all. This retails at about £170, so, you know, you don't have to remortgage, but I, I wouldn't suggest this one's best for buying for all your guests. <laughs> it depends on how many people are coming. This literally spends 15 months aging in bottle underneath the Atlantic Ocean, about 60 meters down. And with that, you get this very special salinity to the champagne. Apparently, it's very ethereal with beautiful purity and loads of minerality. So if you fancy trying a champagne that can swim with the fishes, now you know which one to hunt down. Now, if you are looking for wine on a budget, we Brits have always been infamously known to do our booze cruise. I don't know about other countries. For my more international listeners, please let me know. Do you have countries nearby? Do you get on a boat? Is there somewhere you can go to avoid duties and taxes? We've always gone to Calais, the north of France, and you can get some really good savings on the wines there without having to pay the duty costs. Do keep in mind, they're not as good value as they used to be uh, with sparkling wine specifically. If you're planning your wedding with at least a year in advance, wait for the Christmas sales. Supermarkets with their champagnes, with their cremants, with their sparkling wines, with their Proseccos, they do incredible deals around Christmas time. And to be honest, very often you'll find in supermarkets, when you buy six, you can get 25% off. And because you know, especially with your sparkling wine, how many bottles you need and you don't need to return them, that is a really affordable option and can sometimes be better than a booze cruise. But with your reds and your whites, should anybody be wanting to cross the channel and go and see France for a day, apart from the fact it's really, really fun, just so you know, an average family car can generally fit about 30 cases of six wines. So that's about 180 bottles, okay? But as I mentioned, with the New World wines, wines coming from Chile, Argentina, Australia, coming into the UK, that makes the wines of France and things that you can get on these booze cruises not always as good value. So keeping your eye out for deals throughout the year is often a very good idea. But let's now get to the red and white wines. And if you are purchasing, there are many companies, you can Google them, that will do sale and return policies, which means you don't have to stress about how much you buy. But simple mathematics is buy a bottle per person. <laughs> there you go. Now let's look at white wine. When it comes to picking your white wine, the simplest thing is crowd pleasers, a white wine that's not too oaky, that's not too extreme. You want something lovely and refreshing. And actually with a white wine, if it's got lovely high acidity, it's gonna cut through lots of the proteins that you could choose. So it becomes a lot more versatile. My kind of personal favorites would be things like Grunewald Lina, a lovely fresh wine from Austria. Albarino perhaps from the Rias Baixas region in Spain. That also goes across to Portugal, the Vino Verdes, they're Alvarinhos. So very, very similar. You could go with Sauvignon Blanc. That's quite universal. Perhaps not Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, which can be super, super pungent, but somewhere else. Then there's Chablis in France. And actually, one of my favourites at the moment, and it's becoming a lot more well-known in pubs. Have you heard of Picpou de Pinay? Picpou de Pinay is in the Languedoc, down in the south of France. This is an AOC, Appellation de Origine Contrôlée. And it's just for white wines. Picpou is the great variety and you're going to find it down right on the coastline there's this lagoon filled with oysters i believe this lagoon is called bassin de tout spelt t-h-a-u 
check it out. It's on this special limestone plateau and apparently you get panoramic views of the Mediterranean Ocean. Very, very beautiful. So you have nearly 3,000 hours of sunshine down here in the Languedoc. You've got this wonderful Mediterranean climate, but you've also got this maritime influence, breezes coming in from the coast. Loosely translated, Picpoo means lip stinger, which is fab. And that's what it is. It's that really intense, yummy acidity. It stings your lips. To give you an idea of style, Picpoo is kind of floral. It's citrusy. It's got these lovely soft green apples. There's even often like a little herbally or nutty finish to it. And they're quite full bodied. And actually, that's often people say this is the muscadet of Languedoc. So Muscadet is right by the coast up in the Loire Valley, but with much more full body, basically. So that is what Picpoule de Pinay is. They're very reliable. And in fact, they've got beautiful bottles, very often green, not always, but they're very long, skinny bottles. And they actually have the Languedoc cross embossed at the top. So they're pretty nice bottles and quite rememberable and this kind of wine obviously I've already mentioned the oysters is perfect with oysters but it's great with kind of that salt on fish so it's really good with salmon and scallops and swordfish it can actually cut through the rich cheeses and charcuteries it's good with kind of creamy buttery sauces you can handle it with grilled chicken those kind of salads even pad thai so we're going kind of more to the Asian way so you kind of get an idea in my head when if I was trying to plan for a wedding that's going to allow the white wine drinkers to drink this wine throughout the courses and probably be pretty satisfied also they're very very easy to find at the seven eight nine ten pound mark so you can have your full choice of delicious fresh white wines So to the red wines, you want to take the same approach. Again, don't go anything too massive, too tannic. That's where you get those drying feelings on your tongue and on your gums. You don't want anything too massive and oaky. So some really good options would be Merlot. Merlot is plummy and it's soft and it's round and it's juicy. That's a perfect choice for a wedding wine. Rioja, but I would not go to Rioja Reserva, too much oak. So you want to stick with Rioja Crianza. That's where the Tempranillo grape, which is generally the main grape in that blend, is still quite young. It's fun. It's fruity. It's more of the red fruits. As it gets older, it goes darker, smokier and black fruits in fact so you get a nice approachable style and come on let's face it everybody likes Rioja right (laughs) the other thing I would go with is like New World Pinot Noir New World Pinot Noir it's fun it's lively lots of red fruits but sometimes you have to be careful Pinot Noir you don't get cheap 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 because Pinot Noir is an awkward grape variety that is fussy and it gets quite moldy very easily and it mutates and it splits in your hands when you pick it (laughs) whereas Merlot as an example is a much easier grape to pick so on the budget budget conscious weddings Merlot probably would be the best option and actually seeing as I've talked about Cremont de Limoux which is down in the Languedoc I've picked Picpoux de Pinay which is also down in that region I would say looking for a Merlot in this region is actually you know sticks with the theme what you want to look for on a label is Doc. so it's spelt Pays with an S on the end D apostrophe O-C Doc. you want to look for that that basically is encompasses the Languedoc Roussillon region, the whole of it. So it gives them flexibility. It's the category down that 
obviously means that in general maybe it's not as good quality but actually it makes it more fun they don't have to follow the rules that means they can do single varieties from any area they can mix grapes from one part of the Languedoc with somewhere else in the Roussillon for instance making it much more approachable easy and affordable options and you will definitely be able to find some examples of say a Merlot Paydoc. Obviously, it's a lot easier just to go red and white because you're not making things more complicated. But just because, you know, life is fun and complicated. Don't overlook rosés. The thing is with rosé, it's a wine that can go very well with vegetables. It goes very well with fish and many different types of meats. And actually, lots of spice, lots of herbs. So should you be a real wine lover and you want to give that selection, it is worth thinking about rosé as well. And may I bring that back to the Languedoc Roussillon region once more, or the Pay Doc? <laughs> you really do get great value there. So I highly advise when shopping around for your wedding wines, perhaps that is one of the areas that you want to check out. Now, coming back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, does a bigger punt, does a heavier bottle mean a better wine? In simple terms, no, not at all. <laughs> Let's just talk about the heavier bottles for a second. Generally, it is just marketing. There are many people still that feel that very expensive wine will go in a heavier bottle, and so they are leaning towards that. And wineries are still following suit, knowing that it will be easier to sell their expensive wine should it be in a heavier bottle so so that's not very sustainable and hopefully as time goes by we will see less heavier bottles now going to the punt that punt at the bottom of the bottle or as I mentioned the dimple sometimes people call it that actually it was is traditional this is when back in a time when people were actually blowing the bottles using blow pipes and then they would need to make sure that the bottle stood up straight and that's why the punt appeared it is actually quite good now for sediment so as an example if you've got a very nice red wine and you don't want to fine or filter it so you don't want to take out some of those particles because you want the wine to taste as pure as possible with time these particles some are colloids they're negatively charged some proteins they're positively charged you didn't know it was going to be a bit of a science lesson now <laughs> that's my only science I have nothing else but basically the two of them they will attract to one another over time and they'll precipitate out of the wine so they'll just fall to the bottom of the bottle that is why you get all that black stuff so having that bigger punt does mean that you can obviously keep some of that the little yucky bits at the bottom of the bottle rather than going into your glass and also it's actually a hell of a lot easier to pour if you put your thumb in the punt and then you pour the bottle that's actually a little bit nicer than just grabbing the whole bottle so there are practicalities but it has absolutely no relevance to the quality of the juice so keep that in mind So finally, I get to say a quote about champagne. It seems appropriate. So this quote is from Lily Bollinger when she came to the UK in the 1960s to promote the RD 1952 Bollinger. And this is her response when they asked her when she drank champagne. I only drink champagne when I'm happy and when I'm sad. Sometimes I drink it when I'm alone. When I have company, I consider it obligatory. I trifle with it if I am not hungry and I drink it when I am. Otherwise, I never touch it, unless I'm thirsty. <laughs> uh, I hope you are all thirsty for a nice glass of champagne <clears throat> or 
Gremont. <laughs> so I hope this Q&A style of podcast was useful for you guys. Continue sending me in your requests, your thoughts, your feedbacks, what you want me to talk about. Have you got any questions? And maybe I'll turn that into an episode of one of the next few podcasts. All the information is going to be in the show notes with my email address, my Instagram, where you can send me messages. If you like this podcast, make sure you share it with your wine-loving friends. Leave me a review. And don't forget to subscribe. See you again on another episode of Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat.